You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Chad Carson, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. I was a small real estate investor, but not a particularly powerful one. I began with all the right intentions, create a more diversified portfolio of assets and create cash flow. But I did just about everything wrong. I haphazardly bought properties without crunching the numbers, My managerial process was disorganized and laborsome. Ten years and four properties later, I cashed out and sold them all. The economics worked out reasonably, though I made far less than I would have with index investing and yet put in far more work. But I was left with an overall feeling of, meh. Was it real estate or was it me? Well, my guest today would probably say that I got the equation half right. I was a small investor, but not a mighty one. Chad Carson, also known as Coach Carson, is an author, investor, podcaster, and lifelong learner who used real estate investing to reach financial independence in his 30s. He's the host of the Real Estate and Financial Independence podcast, and his forthcoming book is entitled Small and Mighty Real Estate Investor, Build Big Financial Freedom with Fewer Rental Properties. Chad Carson, welcome back to Earn and Invest. I want to jump right in with the book. Your first chapter is titled Go Small or Go Home. Let's take you back to the beginning of your real estate ventures. Was there anything about your aspirations that were small at the time? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I, I, was, I was one of, I think the, the motivation of this book was seated. It was planted in the very beginning of my, my career. I, I graduated from college and I played football and part of sports, you know, as you, there's a lot of rah-rah. There's a lot of like, Hey, let's go, for, let's go for the championship. Let's do this. And so I, I definitely had that in my blood. I was competitive and, and I, I was sitting at a, a lot of classes early in my career, trying to learn, trying to get better And the, pretty much the dominant ethos of most real estate classes. And a lot of that that ethos is transferred to the internet these days was you're not successful unless you go big. You just, you got to go for it. You got to go buy a bunch of properties and more is better, you know, faster is better. And so I, I bought into it, you know, just think, yeah, I said, this is what all the successful people are doing. And, 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 and so there were some positives of that because it got me moving. It got me, it forced me to be better. There was kind of that excitement about it. And my, I have a business partner for the last 21 years, and the two of us started buying a lot of properties. We were in the, just to give some context, we were in the full-time just trying to flip houses. So it's a little bit different than buying pro- rental properties on the side, but it sort of transferred to everything we were doing as real estate investors. And there was some, some success, 
we made some money, we make a living, we didn't have to go back and work another job. But there was some cost to that as well. And the big cost, in summary, was in 2007. And there was just the risk of, hey, here's a financial crisis. And is there is there some weaknesses in this plan? Like if I'm growing so fast, did I do some things wrong? Did I buy some properties wrong? Did I run the numbers wrong? And it's just difficult when to, to grow fast and to do things like that and pay attention to the details. And the details matter. The small things matter. And so my business partner at that time sort of put the brakes on. I, I credit him more than me. Luckily, I have a business partner. And he was like, we just need to slow down. First of all, we need to survive this recession that seems to be starting right now. But then we also did this exercise where we both, we asked ourselves, I think I, I heard this on reading somewhere, just write down a list of the things that in your ideal world, wave, wave a magic wand, like what kinds of activities would you do on a day-to-day -day basis? And I wrote down things like hiking in the middle of the day. I didn't have kids yet and I wasn't married yet at that time, but I thought, you know, at some point I'd like to have kids. I'd like to spend more time with them. I want to travel, want to go, you know, live abroad with my wife, uh, who's now my wife. So there's, there's things like that. Some of them required money, but many of them, I was lacking time because this big machine I was building, this idea that I had to build a machine and take a lot of time doing it, took all the currency of that time. And yes, it made some money, but there's just something that was out of alignment with that. And so we making that list, understanding the risk of what we were doing was sort of an aha moment. And I read books like Your Money or Your Life, uh, The 4-Hour Workweek, things. And it just was a, an aha moment for us from a business standpoint, from a real estate investing standpoint, where we said, we've got to make a shift here. And how about we approach it where we want to meet our financial goals. We want to do those things on our list, but let's try to do it with the least number of properties possible. Let's flip that on, on his head. And that's really where the small and mighty investor was born. I didn't call it by that name at that point, but it was a more of a minimalism real estate investing philosophy as, a port, as opposed to the 10X, rah, rah, let's get the biggest thing possible so we can post it on Instagram and show off to everybody. It was success would be one property if that satisfied all your goals or four properties. And I'm, I'm a little bit big on the bigger side of the small and mighty investor, but I really resonated with that idea of putting your life first, working it backwards and having this very elegant, efficient investment approach, which index funds and like the JL Collins approach to stocks is kind of that, I think, for the for the stock world. But I think the real estate world is lacking in that. And that's that was a big motivation for me as I've lived that and tried to do that myself and seen some of the fruits of it with my, my own travels and uh, being with my family a lot and being able to do a lot of projects that don't pay me any money, but they're very fulfilling and satisfying. It started making me think, I think I need to share this idea with other people and help other people implement it. And that was the, the motivation for writing the book. I want to talk a little bit about working it backwards, right? Because as I think about it, most people go out into the world and get into a respectable profession, let's say medicine, right? Because that's what I did. And I know you had inklings toward medicine at one point, and then eventually buy real estate to punch up their portfolio or to get financial independence faster. Why do you think you started in real estate? I've got an entrepreneurial itch. Just this, that's just the, the reality of it. And I think part of it is, you know, most entrepreneurs know if they're an entrepreneur, it's you, you enjoy pushing it uh, and taking some risk and you're, you're still able to sleep at night, taking some risks. You know, I think that that relationship with risk is really what entrepreneurship's about. And so for me being 
there's always a risk reward. And the risk was as an entrepreneur, you could just fall flat on your face and not, not succeed at all. But the reward, which I just loved, and I just once I started tasting this reward, drank the Kool-Aid, was how much flexibility and freedom I had from the very beginning to sort of architect my, my schedule, my day. It wasn't that I didn't work hard. Like early in my career, I was working 60, 80 hour work weeks to try to buy properties. And I just, you know, there's an inefficiency when you first start anything. Um, but I loved it because I wasn't with another institution. I wasn't with a boss who was saying, you have to do this. It was, I wake up in the morning, I've got no money coming in guaranteed, but that's exciting. And I can't wait to go try to create this. And so that's that's sort of the entrepreneurial mentality. If you don't like that and that scares you to death, you know, there's other approaches. That's not the right only right approach. There's other safer, especially you got to think about where you are in life. I was a, uh, wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have any family obligations. I, you know, so I was in a, just a fortunate place and I didn't have any debt because I played football in college and that paid for my college. So, you know, we can make a laundry list of, of reasons, some of them personality driven, some of them for being fortunate, but that that was just my my path that excited me. But as I've learned, as I've gotten into this, I've realized and had fun collecting stories of so many different paths within real estate investing. It's a very versatile uh, tool. I look at like a, a toolbox and you know, in destinations, financial independence and freedom and flexibility. Those things I wrote on my list, those are my in destination. There's a, there's a lot of cool variations on how you can use this tool. And depending on where you are, depending on if you want to be full-time entrepreneur, if you want to be, you know, a two hour per week, one hour per week, kind of part-time real estate investor and get the benefits from that, there's everything in between is, is possible with real estate. In a moment, we're going to talk about some definitions, and then we'll start on the seven rules of the small and mighty real estate investor. But before we get there, let's talk about your portfolio, because if you were to ask me in the past, hey, your buddy, Chad Carson, is he a small and mighty real estate investor? I would say, well, he's a mighty one. I don't know if I can totally go with small. Mm -hmm. So before we get to define what a small and mighty real estate investor is, tell us about your current portfolio. Yeah. So I have, as I mentioned earlier, I have a business partner. And so there's a lot of different kinds of partners. We're 50-50 business partners. We, at the very beginning, we started our business together and grew it from property one to where we are now. But we have 33 buildings in our portfolio. And out of those, some of those are single family houses. We have a couple of mobile homes. Uh, so there's a variety of types, but we have sort of resonated around and kind of found success with small multifamily properties. So the fourplex, the threeplex, the uh, have a couple of five units, I have a twelve unit building, and so that th out of those thirty three buildings, that turn that translates into a hundred units, hundred tenants who live in those units, and so I, I like to think about it. You know, half of that's mine, half of that's his. We work together on that. So I have approximately fifty units, uh, fifteen or sixteen. What is that? Sixteen, seventeen buildings on kind of my half. And when you think. I don't want to get ahead of myself with definitions, but on the, there, there is no exact number on what, what a small and mighty investor is. But it, for us, in the market we're in, we could be a lot bigger. We're full-time investors since the very beginning. We, we've had breaks on two or three times in our career where we said, let's reinvest money into paying off debt. Let's reinvest money into distributing the, the profits. And, and so I, I think it's there, there's certainly an attitude about this, this relationship with growth and how often you grow, how fast you grow. Do you decide to start doing some unorthodox things like paying off debt, which is a big theme I talked about a lot in the book? Because I don't think it's, a, I think it's sort of counterintuitive for a lot of people because it's a different strategy, but it's something that 
um, we found to be really important. And it so it, it puts a break on your growth or your portfolio, but it we can talk about some of the benefits of doing that. And for us, it kept us sort of, we've been at that size of a portfolio for a good amount of time. And we're in a smaller, we're in a lower price market. So our average rent on a unit is $750 per unit. So if, if we were to have another market where the average rent was 1500 bucks per unit, you know, we could probably have half the numbers. So there's a, there's a lot of variables that go into there. Number one, does this meet your life, life criteria? Number two, what's the average rent? Depends on the market, depends on your, your particular goals. I was about to say, as we get closer to this definition of what this exactly is, it hits me that the word small doesn't necessarily mean small per se. We're really more talking about philosophy, right? Maybe jumping off this idea of continuous and rapid growth is what we mean when we say small and maybe not necessarily a specific number of units. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a range though. And I will say that I'm on the higher end of what a small mighty investor would be. Most people I've been interviewing, I researched by talking to dozens and dozens of small and mighty investors. You know, it kind of hovers around 10, 15 properties. Like that's a that's a, a good number. But then I have some great stories of people who have one and two and three. So and, and I think about people who have who rent the unit, uh, the garage apartment at their house. That's their one rental unit and how much that difference that makes in their life. And I, so so part of the philosophy for me was trying to validate that approach to real estate investing. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, this has been my full-time career for 21 years. Thus, this is probably what a, a portfolio is going to look like for me. But I also want to talk to that person who, you know, they, they just did one unit, just did one unit, and now they're paying for their, their mortgage payment. And that's, that's pretty mighty. That's, that's small, but it, it's sort of, it's discounted, especially when going back to my, if that's sitting in that class in the chair, to call that successful would be probably not, it wouldn't be on the front first page of a podcast. It wouldn't be like headline, somebody rents their, their, their garage apartment and pays for their housing expense. But I, I want to celebrate that person. I think that's amazing. And I think that should be a validated approach to investing if, if, as much as the person who has 1000 units and chooses to do that as well. So I feel like we've kind of defined the idea of small, right? 10 to 15 units, but can be as little as one and can be as many as as you were talking about your own portfolio. And I think we've got to this idea of mighty, right? This idea that it doesn't really matter except that that portfolio is fulfilling your needs and allowing you to do what you want to do. So let's move on to the seven rules of the small and mighty real estate investor. Rule one, life first, business second. And I'm wondering, is that always true? Because again, I'm thinking about not just real estate, but anytime you jump into a business or even a career like I did with being a physician, at the beginning, sometimes you do put your life aside and and maybe that's okay. Yeah, th- this is a, a compass. You know, I think like if you were going on a hike, you know, you're going to diverge from the direction you're going or maybe a sailboat's a good definition. You know, eventually in a sailboat, you're going to get to the destination, but you have to sort of take the winds where they, where they give you. And as a, as a new, in your new in your career, like when I, I had to work my 16, 80 hour weeks, uh, a physician who's in their residency is doing probably more than that. And anybody early in anything, let's not sugarcoat it. Not, let's not say this is going to be easy or, you know, you're just going to be able to have passive income and there it goes. Like we all know there's, you invest something, whether it's a down payment of money, whether there's a down payment of time and energy, time of effort, all of that has to happen. So work does happen. 
the, the difference though, and this, I got ca- kind of caught up in this myself and had to, you know, most of these lessons are me touching the fire and just learning it myself. So, <laughs> so let's just call it like it is. Uh, but I, I got into putting work first and we could go back to my story of sitting in the classrooms and following, I was basically borrowing goals from other people. And what I was doing was putting the, the tool first. I was putting the technique of real estate investing first and saying, I could go out and buy 50 houses. Wow. Like here's a class I just went to. This person's very successful and they flipped 50 houses per year. Or here's a podcast I just listened to. And this person bought 10 properties in one year. Like That's amazing. That's the tool. That's the technique. And the, the more important question to put life first is to say, what am I trying to accomplish here? Like, What's my ultimate destination? And I think that's so critical, whether you're just investing on the side, whether you're an entrepreneur, like if you don't have that compass, if you don't have that why, if you don't have that sort of navigation system that's guiding you, it's, you're going to get completely lost. And so it's, not, it's okay to get off the pet trail a little bit. It's okay to go zigzagging here and there. But without that, at least in my case, it, it can cost you. It can take cost you years. It can cost you stress. It can cost you uh, achieving goals that really weren't that fulfilling in the first place. And so I, I think w- when it comes to money and real estate, we just got to call it what it is. It's a tool. It's there to accomplish things for you. It's there to help you accomplish things for your community. There, there's other things that that matter most. Money is a wonderful tool. Real estate's a wonderful tool. So I just I wanted to start off with that rule. Dude, let's just let's let's just keep it real. Make sure we we keep those priorities in place, and then we can have fun with the tool. Like it's fun. Like I, I'm a I don't, I, there's another there's another one of the uh, the lessons of the seven mighty investors, which is being a craftsman. Like I just think it's fun. I think it's fun to have a craft. Real estate in particular. You know, you talked about your story at the beginning. Some people don't get any joy out of it. I don't know if you did. I'd be curious, Jordan, if you if you just enjoyed it. I find that the people who stick with real estate investing have to have some fun with it. Like it's got to be something that's interesting to them. And that could be, I just like doing the bookkeeping and making sure everything's in order. Or I like the the, the chase, I like going and finding the property. But if, if you don't have fun with it, they're, they're, you're going to have to get involved with it a little bit early on. Therefore, you know, there's other options. There's index funds. There's other things that are, are viable too. So real estate has a lot of benefits, but it also is something that sort of a mix of entrepreneurship and investing. So it's got to be something that you enjoy using that tool as well. Yeah. I found that I enjoyed parts of real estate and especially I enjoyed in the beginning crafting the deal, getting tenants in, getting the business up and running. I think for me, the stressors came with the maintenance over long term. And of course, you know, I was in the midst of it during COVID, and I think there were a lot of the stressors that came along with COVID, not necessarily the not being rented, but a lot of problems with the units I had, et cetera. I think that became overwhelming, and I think that really slowed me down, which kind of brings me to rule two, because in a sense, I did acquire a number of properties quickly, and I found that I went from zero to more busy than I wanted to be with it. So rule two is be the real estate tortoise and not the hare. How do you know when you're going too fast? Like, how do you know when you're like, oh, this is working and I'm feeling this power? And it's like, why not buy a few more units? And you were just talking about the FOMO too. Like, so and so has 50 units. I'm just on two. Like, why shouldn't I buy that hundred unit multifamily? Yeah, I'll give I'll give a couple of lenses on how you know you're moving too fast. So if if you're one is financial and let's let's look at the cash you have in the bank. I think this is a really good practical. You could call it a governor for your speed. You know, the protection for your speed is how much cash reserves you have set aside. 
I'm just a big fan. And I've, I've just seen so many situations where people didn't have enough cash reserves and they crashed and burned as a real estate investor, as a business owner. I've also seen myself where I, I have made tons of mistakes. Let's just, I want to get that out up front, especially in 2005, six and seven, early in my career. But the thing I didn't make a mistake on is my business partner. I live frugally. We didn't spend all the money we made. We had pretty big cash reserves and then we needed it. <laughs> like we had to have it. And so I think having, I always recommend to people, if you buy your first rental property, set aside 5,000 bucks in the bank. Savings account, you can't touch it. It's separate from your regular operating account. It's separate from your personal account. Put it in a, an account. You can use that in case the heating and air breaks. You can. It's just going to help you sleep at night. If you get up to two or three properties, maybe you have 15,000 bucks in the bank. And then if you get to more properties, if you get to 10 properties, maybe you can, at some point I switched to just looking at it more like a personal finances, like look at how much your, your all of your hard expenses are, taxes, insurance, management, maintenance, take your uh, mortgage payments, figure out what your monthly overhead is, your burn rate as a real estate investor and have at least three months of that. Six months would be more conservative. I know people like my friend, Scott Trench, I think he used to have like 12 months set aside in cash. Like there's a variability there, but the point is, you will not be you will not be um, disappointed when things go badly if you have cash in the bank. But what that does is that forces you to be a tortoise. Like you have to, it's going to slow you down because you have less money for that next deal. And what? Let's go to the psychological and the learning benefit of being a tortoise. And this comes from one of my mentors that I really learned a lot from, uh, called, named John Schaub. He wrote a book called Building Wealth One House at a Time, and he really emphasized. The benefit, especially the first few years of your real estate investing career, every just do one deal, just buy one property. That's going to be like a university education in, a, in and of itself. And if you give yourself time to study it, you're going to learn things that you're going to do differently on your second deal. You're going to learn that, well, that street's not quite as good as the next street over, or maybe I should have put more money down. Maybe I should have put less money down. Maybe that lender wasn't the best lender. Maybe I should have used, uh, you know, vinyl plank flooring in the kitchen instead of, you know, having something different. Like there's so you, you could take a list of notes that you'll never learn from listening to a podcast. Maybe you will, but you're going to learn one at a time, whereas you're going to have this forced university education. And if you buy too many at a time, especially early, you're missing out on that education and you're missing out on that confidence you're building. And so I, I think that's why the tortoise wins. I think it's because they're more financially resilient. I think it's because they're compounding knowledge at a really fast rate. Whereas I'll, I'll speak for myself, when I was buying in 2007, we had 33 closings in one year. Wow. That's so a we, lot. We, we, we bought a lot of properties and we were, again, we're full-time investors, but we were on the go, go, get big. And I, we didn't learn, we, we, we had the opportunity to learn after the fact, after we had already bought these properties and we had some that we would like to give back. Uh, I wish we wouldn't have bought in that location. We bought multiple properties in that location because they seemed like a good deal. Why not do two? Why not do three? So th there's just a uh, so many benefits to being the tortoise and the tortoise wins. It's, it's, it seems boring. The biggest challenge of being a tortoise is boredom. And it's like, oh man, everybody, I can't, everybody else is doing so, going so fast. And there's that FOMO. And, there, and I think that's one of my big motivations of this book is let, let's celebrate some people who took it slowly, who, who are small and show how successful they have been in the in the bigger picture to help people with, with the FOMO of saying, all right, fine, I'm, I'm doing pretty well according to this definition. So we're talking the seven rules of the small and mighty real estate investor. One and two seem fairly philosophical and theoretical. Rule three is a pretty tactical and specific. Rule three is just start with four properties 
why four? How did you kind of land on that very specific piece of advice? Yeah, I think I borrowed that advice from Michael Zuber. He's another YouTube podcaster, a YouTuber and podcaster in the real estate space. But I've often given that advice even before he said that. There's a practical reason. If you're getting financial, uh, you're getting loans, you're getting financing, conventional financing, there's just a cutoff point at four loans where they start not necessarily rejecting you for the next loan, but it's just you kind of enter a different territory, a different set of qualifications. So it's just easier to get those first three to four loans. That's that's just one simple, simple thing. The other part is sort of back, going back to the tortoise idea. It's a very manageable goal. I, I find that sometimes when people hear, uh, eventually, I want to have 10 properties. I want to achieve financial independence. I want to do this thing. It's, it's so far up on the mountain. It's like the peak of the mountain. And I can't imagine myself being there. Four properties, though, if you did one property a year for the next four years, we can we can sort of think about four years from now and I could get there. And I think it's just, it's, it, it, let's use the mountain climbing metaphor. It's like getting you know a little bit up the mountain to a little plateau, taking a break, put setting your tent, camping a little bit, thinking about what you've done. And it's just it's just a good milestone. And so that's that that rule right there is for beginners because people beginners who read this book and they just need to know where am I trying to get grit to? Uh, my first book, Retire Early with Real Estate, showed them the whole journey and how to get to the destination. Like I wanted to add something that said, for you new, for if you're new, just get to this point. You might decide, you know, I think it's kind of cool. You had four properties that that's that's good enough for me. I'm going to stay there. You might decide that you want to keep going, and either one of those is fine. And you you might even decide to sell one or two and keep one or two. So there's so many options from there. But if you go, if you make your first goal ten or fifteen. And then you camp out and start thinking about it. It's a little more difficult to maneuver. You've got more baggage. You've got more things to do. I think four is just a it's just an easy number. It's the financing makes sense, and then you can re- rethink from there your strategy on how you're going to keep climbing if you want to. Chad Carson is an author, investor, podcaster, and lifelong learner who used real estate investing to reach financial independence in his 30s. And we are talking the seven rules of the small and mighty real estate investor. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately 
that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Let me reintroduce Chad Carson. He is the author of... Mighty Real Estate Investor, Build Big Financial Freedom with Fewer Rental Properties. And we are talking the seven rules of the small and mighty real estate investor. Rule one, life first, business second. Rule two, the real estate, be the real estate tortoise and not the hare. Rule three, just start with four properties, which brings us to rule four. We discussed this a little bit. Be a craftsman. Specifically, what does that mean? You know, I always love the analogy of a carpenter or an artisan. You know, I, I, my daughters are very creative. I've been really inspired by them because they love art. And for me, the the beauty of an artist is that they they don't do it for money. <laughs> they don't do it for because it's, it's really difficult to make money in art. They just love the details of it. My my daughters love the drawing and the just which brush they're going to use or which pen they're going to use. Or it, and so those those details are really important. And so this gets to when you when you invest in real estate, I think being a small investor allows you to enjoy the craft. For me, the the, the part of the real estate investing I enjoyed was the negotiation, the, the people side of it. I got really good at just having conversations with people. And I, I, I looked at it like solving a puzzle, whereas I have this, this knowledge in my head. You know, instead of going to be a doctor and diagnosing illnesses and diagnosing how to solve this, I was diagnosing problems with people who owned real estate. And sometimes there were all sorts of life problems. Sometimes it was, you know, it could get ugly and they had a financial problem and were losing their house to foreclosure. Sometimes it could just be, you know, just an annoying thing. Oh, we've got this property. This, I don't really need to sell it, but do I really want to own it? Thought about renting it, but I don't know that I want to rent it. So I, I would listen to these stories and, and then I would use my expertise as a real estate investor to try to offer a solution also present the alternatives. You could list the property and do this work yourself. And so I just, I enjoyed that craft of communicating and solving problems for other people. They like to do the work on the houses. And, you know, if you went to the seminars that scale and you, you should always have systems and scale and never do the work yourself and outsource everything that they would kind of like look down on that. Like, Oh, you own five properties and you still do the maintenance yourself and still cut the lawn yourself. Like, Oh, you're not a successful investor. And I would say, no, you're a successful investor because you care about the details. You, you, you take pride in your property. 
And you also take pride in your community. And that, this is something that's been a reality for me is that as a real estate investor, I got into it like a lot of people do is this for me, like, I want to make some money. This is great. But I stuck around and the fascinating part of it was that my house, my property there is not just a solo entity. It's part of this, this town, this community, this neighborhood. And I started volunteering for the local, uh, you know, the, the, the planning commission. And that led to me starting a not nonprofit because there's this problem in my town. I'm, a, I'm big into walkability and trying to make our towns more easy for people to get out of your car and move around. Just a passion of mine. And most of the towns in the United States, unfortunately, in the North America were built around cars for the last 50, 60 years. And so it's really difficult to do that. So I identified that problem. And I, as a, somebody who has a vested interest in our town, I, I just care about it. Like I live there, I invest there, I want to try to make a difference. And so a group of us started a nonprofit to try to build a network of walking and biking trails in our community. That was 2014. It's been slow, slow going, but that's the kind of thing I, I see small and mighty real estate investors doing. They care about their community. They get involved in it. They try to make a difference. They use their property to, and they identify the people who live there as like real human beings. Like this, this is not a number on a piece of paper from Wall Street with a big spreadsheet. Like this is this is Jordan. This is Chad. This is Melissa, who's my tenant, who works over at the hair salon. Like it's it's, it's real people, real craft, and I, I find that to be inspiring. And I think it's we need we need more small money investors who take pride in their craft and in their communities and not less. Like, I think that's one of the important fabrics of our, our small towns, our neighborhoods and big cities is having people who, uh, who don't just have own a property and just leave it to whatever's going to happen and kind of be hands off that they actually care about it and they take pride in it. Yeah. I feel like there should be like an addendum to rule for be a craftsman, but then the addendum would be use your craft for good, which is specifically what you're talking about, uh, which is really nice to see because we have this view of landlords as squeezing tenants in bad areas and not fixing things and being unfair and evicting people. And what I really saw through your book was the pride of actually trying to do good with something that was causing you also personal benefit, like that it was a win-win for everybody, including the community. Yeah, I mean, I, there's different views on capitalism, right? And we're not there, there's some negative aspects of it, but I, I think at its best on this micro level, on the small level, is this is this, this exchange, this voluntary ex- exchange. If people need affordable housing, people need a nice place to live. That that demand is there, and we as investors would also like to have a return on our investment. We'd like to have income streams. And there, there's a there's an inter, there's an interchange there. there. It's not a something for nothing. It's we both get something out of it. And my some of my, my most of my tenants, I, I can't I think of so many amazing tenants have been so beneficial to me, obviously. But I would really like to think that they have their life has benefited by living in this place that I carefully selected to make sure it was in a good location next to the bus route. And that I carefully selected it because it had a backyard that they could have their pet in. And because I carefully selected it because it had enough bedrooms to, to house more people. So like that that carefulness, that craft, it it's uh it's affecting people. And you know, I, yeah, I stand up for small entrepreneurs and small businesses. I'm I'm less apt to stand up for. Amazons and the Wall Street uh, house buyers and all that. I think that's it has its place, but I, it doesn't it doesn't move me. But small and mighty investors move me. So, rule five of the seven rules of the small and mighty real estate investors is controversial. Rule five: debt is a tool, not a religion. And I have to admit, when I talk to real estate people, many do kneel at the altar of leverage. This is a mistake. 
So, so I, I need to introduce a concept here is that there's a time and place for everything. I, you know, I, I think most people are familiar with Dave Ramsey. He's, he's of the philosophy, you should never borrow money, that you should just pay it off as quickly as you can. Maybe you should buy, get a mortgage on your house that you live in 15 years, but pay that sucker off as fast as you can. I like to, to remind people that there's this basic journey you go on as a real estate investor. You begin as a starter. And as a starter, you just need to get those four properties. And you need to, very often, you're going to have very little capital to start off and probably very little knowledge. And so you're going to be the tortoise. You're going to just plod by. Success means not making big mistakes. It means being able to use some leverage to get in a game. And so leverage, using debt, is a great tool for a starter. That's part one. You graduate from being a starter into this, I call it a wealth builder stage, and leverage is also helpful there. You still need to be careful, but if you want to accelerate, let's say from four properties to 10 properties and achieve your goals with financial independence, leverage can be very helpful. And this is where a lot of the popular tools you might hear of uh, in real estate investing, all these financing tools like the Burr strategy, which stands for buying a property, remodeling it, getting it rented, and then refinancing it. So you pull a lot of your money back out, hopefully, if you do, it's not always, but if you got a good deal on it, you might be able to pull some of your money back out that you put into the property in the first place. And then you, you move on, you repeat that over and over again. So it's a way of recycling your down payment capital or some of your upfront capital. And great, great tool, right? But worshiping at the, the altar of the Burr strategy or anything else is using the tool and never putting it back in the toolbox. Because eventually... You get to the stage, I, I call it in the book, the ender stage. Although since I've been talking to people, ender is a little bit of a downer. Like, are, am, I, am I ending my journey? Like, no, no, no. Um, I, I like to think about it like harvesting or uh, spend it. You're the spender now. You're going to spend your money now. And at that point, if you continue to get debt and forevermore perpetually have debt, like what's what's the point? Like where, where are you growing to? Like what what are you trying to go go up to? I call it like I I teach people in the book how to work it backwards and figure out how many properties you actually need to have the amount of income you need to meet your FI goals, whether it's lean FI, regular FI, or maybe a more kind of fat FI kind of goal where you have the luxuries and the and the extra padding you want financially. Once you have more than that, paying off debt actually makes a lot of sense, at least to me. That's my strategy because it allows you to stay smaller. It allows you to increase your income. It allows you to reduce risk, which is something that people talk about all the time, but it's, the way I describe risk is what's the worst case scenario? Like what if we had Great Depression number two? You know, like we actually had a five or 10 year period where rents went down and prices went down. Yes, very unlikely, but what if it happened? And what if you continued growing past the point that you really needed to grow? You had enough. And yet you try to keep getting a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and you lost it or you made a huge mistake that you went, you slid back down the mountain. I think it was Warren Buffett who said it's insanity to risk everything you've built or everything you have for something you really don't need. And I think that's the, the essence of this relationship with debt. That's a tool that's fantastic for growing, especially when you have very little capital in the beginning. But at some point, if you keep using debt, especially as a small smaller investor, you know, you're you're risking the thing that you built. And so why not keep it simpler? Um, what the way I, my business partner and I started looking at it, it wasn't paying off 100% of our properties, but we started plowing back money and when we had $100,000 and we had a $100,000 note, especially if it's one we have a, a ranking system like we'll rank the the most risky debt, pay that off first, 
or pay off the debt that has the highest payment first, or pay off the debt that um, you know just you, has a lender that you're really not keen on borrowing from. So, like, I, I don't like. I'm not big on borrowing from banks. I, I feel like in a big recession or a big a tough situation, I've seen how little they care about the borrower, <laughs> and especially as a commercial borrower, if you have a commercial note. And so, I, I find paying off banks has been fun. That I can you know send them the check and say I'm done. No more, no more payments to you, bank. And so I still, we still have some debt, even at this point. I think we're, if you look at our entire portfolio, when we first started, we were in the 70 to 75% loan to value ratio. So if we had a, you know, a million dollar portfolio of real estate, we would have 700 to $750,000 worth of debt. Today, the equivalent of that million dollar portfolio has grown bigger than that, but it would be like $150,000 in debt. And so we still have some debt, we're keeping it, but I, I like to encourage people to do this because it reduces your risk, it simplifies your portfolio, you're not going to continue growing, and it helps you produce income. Like when you pay off, uh, I'll give somebody an example. Let's say you've been paying a 30-year note for 10 years. What is really interesting to look at that is that the payment as a ratio of the loan value at that point actually gets pretty high. Like we started paying off properties that had a 12% putting in quotation marks, people are listening to this cash on cash return. Like you're, you're, you're paying this loan off. And you know, if you spend a hundred thousand bucks to pay off something that produces $12,000 per year, or it costs you $12,000 per year in mortgage payments. So that's a, where else can you get something that reduces your risk and pays you a 12% cash return? Like that's, that, that, when I first started doing that, I was like, is it, why is anybody talking about this? That's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> incredible. Um, I'm just going to do more of it. And, and we did that and we were able to increase our cash flow over and over and over again without buying more properties, without having to deal with any more heating and air tenants uh, units, without having to deal with, you know, just the maintenance and the issues. We kept what we already had and we actually started selling off some of the properties we really didn't like because the maintenance was harder, because it wasn't an ideal, it didn't fit in our kind of ideal buy box. And when we sold those properties, we would pay taxes on a lot of the, the gains on those and then use the gains to pay off more debt on other properties. So that was the strategy we started using sort of to dig ourselves out of the 2007, eight, nine hole <laughs> once we started doing that. And then it became a strategy that we really resonated with and made sense as a core part of the, being a, a small and mighty investor. So rule six is don't defer life. And I feel like we've talked about that enough. So let's move over to rule seven, measure success differently. So how does a small and mighty real estate investor measure success in a way that's different from your typical investor? Yeah. In the book, I talked about that there, there are different goals you can set. And I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Edward DC, I think was the, the scientist who had a study. I think it was a social scientist and showed that the types of goals you set matter. And I think the, the the study that I quoted there was there were intrinsic goals and there was extrinsic goals. And this isn't making either one of these wrong, but extrinsic goals are typically things that are, you know, people can validate externally. They can say, I have, I have I'm beautiful, or I have this much wealth, or I have, uh, you know, this much success kind of in my career, the, you know, a title, those kind of things. And, and again, I'm not down on that because I think those are valid to an extent, right? But what they found in the study, which I found really interesting, is that to the extent that you are dominated by extrinsic goals as opposed to intrinsic goals, which are things like personal growth, relationships with other people, that could be your family, it could be your community, or contribution kind of to something bigger than yourself. To the extent that extrinsic is more dominant in your, when you set your goals than intrinsic, you'll, you're more psychologically unhealthy. Just as the term they use in the study. I just found that very interesting. And it sort of validated this idea that I've always had 
that is, is similar to life first, business second, but is is to the extent you can, like keep keep your life goals and the things that matter to you first, and then judge your success by that. So it's a difficult thing to do. Like I still struggle with it, but you know, nobody can really know whether you've been successful. Nobody can really know how far you've come to get to the point you are. If you have one property and you've built wealth or you paid your debt off, like, wow, look at all where you've come from to get there. And it might not make the, the best headline on social media. It might not be as impressive externally, but to the extent that you can say that was a success, like I've, look how far I've come is, is an important part of being a small money investor because it avoids the sort of the comparison trap and I've got to be as good as that person. And so that's something I've had to struggle with. It was like, I see other people and I'm competitive going back to my sports days. Like I could do that. I could do what they're doing. In fact, I could do it. I could do it better than they're doing it. And, and yet when I think about what success for me is I'm taking a walk with my kids or I'm going to their activity or I'm going on a trip to Spain where I am right now, we're living in Spain for a year. And these things matter the most to me and to my family. I feel successful. And when I remind myself of that, then it feels good. It's just a, it's an orientation to life. And I think we, those of us who are oriented towards financial independence and money, we're naturally pretty go-getters. We're naturally pretty ambitious. And so this is, all of these are reminders to myself, first and foremost, by the way. And so just remember, Chad, like, let's, you know, let's orient yourself to success in a way that's actually going to make you happy, not in a way that's, that's going to try to impress people and still a struggle, but it's something that I, I felt like was important to remind ourselves of. And to remind everyone before we move on, these are the seven rules of the small and mighty real estate investor. Rule one, life first. Rule two, be the real estate tortoise and not the hare. Rule three, just start with four properties. Rule four, be a craftsman. Rule five, debt is a tool, not a religion. Rule six, don't defer life. And last but not least, rule seven, measure success differently. Let's look a little bit globally, Chad. First and foremost, I feel like we have to say this every time I do a podcast about real estate, but I think it's worthy to ask the same question again. Is real estate ever passive? Because passive income and real estate have become synonymous. And is it fair to put those words together? I think passive income is a false goal. I think even people who have index funds, it's not completely passive. They check on it. They look at it. It's it's a spectrum. And so on the spectrum of passive investments, you have CDs, you have index funds, you have things like that, but there's always a cost benefit, right? And real estate, I, the way I define it and tell everybody is passive, is can, it eventually can be passive enough. It can be passive enough to do anything you want to do in your life. And let me give you a specific example. Uh, I've been in, as I mentioned earlier, I've been in Spain for the last 12 months and I track this here and there. I don't track it every single week now because it's pretty consistent. I spend less than two hours per week on my real estate properties. And I'm a little more involved than most people, but this is a mature ender portfolio, you know, somebody who's worked at this for a few years, but I spend two hours per week. I do it from another country. I do some bookkeeping. I have some text messages, occasionally a call where I have to make some tough decisions on things. So should we spend 5,000 bucks on that or 3,000 bucks on this? Uh, You know, I tell people we're going to spend, yes, let's spend the money on that. So I have people managing my properties in my particular situation, but I also know people who have 10 properties or five properties and self-manage their properties who spend less than two hours per week on their portfolio. And so what can you do with the rest of your week if your real estate portfolio paid for 100% of your personal expenses and you spend one or two hours per week? 
but it's passive enough. Like it, that's that's the point. The, the the kind of argument of like which which things are more passive, index funds or real estate, is a is this kind of a silly debate. It's 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 if you like real estate, and I'm not trying to pitch real estate to everybody. Like you probably know if you're interested in real estate or not. And if you're not, cool. Like that's fine. But to, to say that real estate's a bad investment because it's not passive is because you haven't worked on your systems, because you haven't bought the right properties, because you haven't done some things that I've tried to teach in the book about you know, choosing properties that are going to be easier to have the tenants who are going to attract tenants who manage themselves in a lot of the ways. There's still things, you, responsibilities you have, but there's a big difference. There's a spectrum of how people apply the real estate investing principles and which ones result in a passive enough portfolio and which ones don't, which some of the most happy, relaxed, fulfilled people I know are landlords who own a small number of properties and they're paid off or they're mostly paid off. They have a manageable number of properties. They spend a little bit of time and they have tons of time to do lots of other stuff. So passive enough. That's that's the mantra these days for me with real estate. Chad, I find that there's a lot of people are interested in real estate, but they're also scared or feel that they could be burned like what happened in 2007, 2008. So what do you tell people who are looking towards the future, right? There's always someone somewhere in the press or on social media saying that real estate bubble is about to burst. Things are about to get tough for the next decade. What do you tell people who are feeling that shyness and yet feel like this could be for them? I would say you need to look at, let's look at the fundamentals of real estate and you can really, there's, there's several ways you make money in real estate, but I, I could break it down to two. You could think about them like engines on a rocket. The core engine of the rocket of real estate is income. It's the rental income that the property produces. Now, there's another rocket called growth, price growth, appreciation, equity growth, where your, your property goes from $300,000 to $600,000. And you can make a lot of money. That, that, that price growth can put you into the outer space of wealth building. That's great. But the steady, true core engine of real estate investing is income. And so I try to remind people of that because it helps you to have a long-term perspective when you say my property, the income on my property minus all my expenses has to pay, not only pay for my bills, there needs to be a margin there. There needs to be a little bit of, at least a little bit of positive cash flow. And if you consciously get into a property that has a negative cash flow, then you need to have some staying power. Like that's a, that's a scary thing to get into. You need to have a plan. You need to have a big amount of money up front. I would prefer, this is just my personal preference, instead of funding a negative cash flow, get into the deal where you put more money down up front. So for example, I know a lot of people on the West Coast, East Coast, big cities, they are looking at properties that are much more expensive and the rent to price ratio is is much different there. You're buying a $600,000 property that rents for $200,000. Well, first and foremost, you probably, it's gonna be hard to make that property cash flow, especially as interest rates have gone gone, uh, up. But even then, you're going to need to, to put more money down to make a deal uh, work on the West Coast or, East, or the big cities. You're going to have to have more money to play in that in that market. That's just the reality of it. That's you're, it's a bigger bigger money market. You're either going to need to be an owner occupant and get like a house hacking loan where you can put smaller money down, or you're going to have to bring in a partner. I know some have some investor students in California, San Francisco Bay Area who do that. They'll they'll go find the deal. They'll find a passive money partner who has $150,000 sitting on the sidelines, they don't want to manage the property. They don't want to deal with it. And so they come together to buy a rental property where the money partner is more passive. The entrepreneur manages the property. 
and they can be patient and wait. And that's the key word here. It's like 2023 is going to have some ups and downs. Who knows? Maybe you have another recession. But I bought in 2006 and seven, and I was able to get through that because I had a long-term income perspective where I said, the core engine's income. I got to pay my bills. I got to make sure there's positive cash flow. If it doesn't do that, I don't buy the deal. I look for another way to do the deal. And the benefits of that is over the long run, if you can do that, if you can not be in and out of the market, trying to time the market all the time, then you'll benefit from those large growth growth spurts. I've I've been amazed like how much when, when properties go up 20, 30% in a year, like, wow, like I didn't expect that. But you got to be in the game. You got to have that patient, persistent, just be in the game. Don't try to time the market. That's it's just like with stock investing. I think I, I feel like that's my strategy in the stock market as well. Is if, if you can have that long-term perspective and understand the fundamentals of stocks, that they also produce in, income, they also have earnings. And your goal as a stock investor is just to let those earnings compound and recycle and buy more more stocks. Same way in real estate. There's no if you, if you can simplify this game down to like the basics, the fundamentals, then you can sort of ignore all the the screaming and the yelling and the stuff that happens to try to scare you. You can just focus on what works and what doesn't work. Well, the book is Small and Mighty Real Estate Investor, Build Big Financial Freedom with Fewer Rental Properties. Chad, the book is available through Bigger Pockets as of what date? So July 20th, it'll be available through the publisher, Bigger Pockets, and we have it available for the first month there on the website. There's some pretty cool bonuses. Like I, uh, one bonus, I wrote a uh, kind of a, a guide to how I spend my time calendar. Here's here's when I spend those two week, those two hours per week. Here's what I spend my time doing. And then also have an exercise where people can fill out their own calendar, try to figure out what their two hour work week would look like. And then some other cool, cool bonuses that you can only get through bigger pockets. If you're listening to this later after August 22nd, it'll be available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the big, the big retailers as well. And what is the easiest way to get in touch with you if people have questions? So I, I my home online is Coach Carson. Dot com And if you look up Coach Carson or Coach Chad Carson on pretty much any social media, the major social media channels, I'm out there. Uh, I, I enjoy hearing from you. And you can you can send me an email to chad at coachcarson.com as well. I, I don't respond to a lot of my emails. I just put that out there, but I love to hear from you. I get a little overwhelmed. But I'm, I'm a small and mighty content producer. So I, I, don't, I don't have a, a huge team helping me to do everything there as well. But I do love hearing from you. I would love, appreciate you listening to the podcast if you just want to follow along there. I have a real estate focus. Um, I'm more in the, the financial independence camp as well, but I get into the technical details of, of growing your properties, of paying off debt, of managing your properties, of selecting the properties that make the most sense, running the numbers. Uh, I enjoy the craft of it. I enjoy helping other people who are small and mighty investors trying to either get in the game or grow get out of the game, live off their income. It's, it's fun for me to, to go full circle and see other people making this work. So it's a, it's a fun passion project for me as well. Chad Carson, thank you so much for coming on Earn and Invest today. Jordan, it's been a pleasure. Glad I get to catch up with you as well. Hope we get to see each other in person sometime soon. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. My parents were real estate investors, so I became a real estate investor. But don't think for a minute I knew what I was doing. It started back in about 2005, 2006, 
Believe it or not, I was looking for a city apartment. My wife and I lived in the suburbs. We had two little kids. We wanted an apartment in the city so that we could go spend the weekends in the city. We bought a place. We haggled for quite a while. Got a pretty good price. And we used it for about six months. We decorated it. Everything was perfect. But the kids were too young and we really weren't using it. So the realtor who helped us buy it said, you know what? I have a friend. He's getting a divorce. Why don't you just let him move in? You can leave it furnished and you can rent it out to him. And so this was easy and we weren't using it. So we rented out to him. And a year later, he wanted to continue the lease and we were making money. And I said, aha, this is my chance to get into real estate. And so my wife and I went searching, and this was right around 2007, 2008. There were actually a lot of foreclosures. We found another apartment to put about $10,000 in to fix it up and rented that one. And then eventually we bought a lake house in Wisconsin, right on Lake Michigan. This was a four-bedroom house. We bought it remodeled it. We did a significant remodel. It took about six months. We were going to use it actually as our own summer house and then Airbnb it on the weekends. But by the time we got done remodeling it, we were so tired, we didn't even want to furnish it. So we went ahead and rented it out. And we did that for like two or three years. And then the couple who was renting it out ended up buying it for hundreds of thousands of dollars more than we bought this place. We had bought it in foreclosure. It was extremely cheap. And we took that money and did a 1031 exchange. So we took all the profits from it and put it into two more units. And before I knew it, I had four units. I might be what Chad Carson called a small and mighty investor. Well, I certainly was a small investor, but I wasn't mighty. What I mean is I didn't really understand the numbers of most of the deals I did. They ended up turning out fine, but I could have been more careful. I also wasn't what... Chad calls a craftsman. I wasn't practicing my craft. I wasn't doing a good job of taking care of the units. I wasn't doing a good job of my bookkeeping. And then when COVID hit, it became a huge problem. We had problems with a number of our units and I decided to sell everything. And I have to tell you, I'm pretty happy that I did. All in all, I made some decent profits. I had some decent cash flow. I still probably would have done better in the S&P 500 index, But hey, this was the years from like 2005 to 2020. So everyone did fantastically in equities at the time. So I came out unscathed, a little bit fatigued, and realizing that I didn't have what it takes to be a small and mighty real estate investor. That doesn't mean it isn't right for you. It just wasn't right for me. In fact, it was right for my parents. My parents owned 10 to 15 units at one point. And it really supplemented their income and it worked for them. So I guess what I want to take out of this is real estate is worth a try. And it's something you can certainly use as a form of cash flow, as a form of diversification. But there's going to be some work involved. And so this is not passive income. It gets more passive over time, as Chad was saying but it's not passive to start with. So I just want everyone to keep that in mind. You can be a small and mighty real estate investor. Real estate can do amazing things for your path to financial independence, as well as for your net worth. It can create some great cash flow, but make sure you understand what it is and make sure it's something that you want to do and you're good at, because not everyone is going to want to do this. And that's what I learned about myself is like, I could do real estate and I could be just fine, but ultimately... It wasn't how I wanted to be spending my time. It wasn't serving me. 
And I think that's Chad's point with this new book is real estate needs to serve you. It doesn't just mean getting more and more doors and having a bigger and bigger asset class of real estate. It means using one or two or three or five or 10 properties to fulfill your needs. And that's what I did when I owned real estate. And then when it wasn't fulfilling my needs, I did what I had to do. I got rid of it. And I'm not ashamed and not sorry that I did it. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. One other thing, if you're listening to this right now, these episodes have been recorded a few weeks before today. And the reason why is I am currently in Lisbon, Portugal. But this part, this last diatribe at the end of each episode, I am still doing while I'm here in Portugal with my little mic connected to my computer. Uh, So if the sound quality isn't as good... I apologize. I am doing these remotely, uh, but I am hopefully going to continue my enjoying myself here in Lisbon, and I will be back in Chicago soon, and hopefully you won't notice any difference. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon. All right, I leave things running just for a second or two. Was there anything about the book that we did not talk about that you want out there? There's a lot, but it, that was you—you you hit the core stuff. I mean, yeah, you know, I read it. I, I read every single word, and there's so much great tactical stuff there. But I knew that there's no way I could do justice no. to how much tactical stuff there was, yeah. and that's why I said, you know, this is the core of the yeah. philosophy, which hopefully will then get people to read and learn about the tactics. Yeah, I mean, you, you've written a book now, so maybe you can give me advice. It's, this is actually the first interview I've done for the book, so thank you. Um, I think the, I think talking about the philosophy gets people into the story of the book and the deal, and, the, and then there'll be other tactical episodes, like I'm sure on the Bigger Pockets episodes, they're going to get into the is it really tax benefits uh, is there really a tax benefit to paying off debt or how does that work and so i mean the the x's and o's are cool but i think i I, my a lot of audiences i think are gonna enjoy hearing that but i'll be i'd love some suggestions feedback if you have them on how to promote the book how to frame it put it out there to people yeah i mean i think so you know my experience is podcasts obviously are a really good way to market it right first and foremost Mm -hmm. um I think whether you're more philosophical or tactical is really depend on who's interviewing you, right? And mm-hmm. so you probably don't have a lot of say on that because they're going to come to the conversation. Yep. They're going to come to the conversation with a plan. I think the you know the some of the more sticky bits of tactics. I think you can promote like whether that's YouTube or TikTok or in your own podcast, etc. Some of those kind of big issue points. Um, I think you can focus on from time to time. So like a huge, a huge message of yours is the number of properties actually doesn't matter. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, don't scale too fast. I think those are huge messages. And especially when you're doing a more general audience. Right. So when you're doing bigger pockets, you can get into much more specific tactical stuff. Right. But like when you're doing stacking Benjamins or when you're doing earn and invest, when you're doing those kind of things, those kind of big picture philosophical ones, I think are, are better. Right. Um, and yeah. I think you can even say that when you're being interviewed, you could talk about the philosophical and you can say, you know, and there's tons of tactical information, you know, if you want to, you can go to the book and see, see where this is. Um, yeah. I was advice. surprised, actually, I got uh, like I was finding as time went on, I got a lot of bump from having 
people review my book on their blogs, which I didn't think I would. Mm. Um, so there were a few like like Fritz Retirement Manifesto when he re- re- reviewed my book. There was a huge bump that that week. Um, Mike Piper from the Oblivious Investor when he reviewed it, huge bump. Um, so I was surprised by that because I thought it was going to be all podcasts. Um, and then and then of course there's media like. I don't mm-hmm. know. Do you have a media plan? Are you pushing much on media? I mean, I will tell you bigger pockets, I think is a my experience and the bigger pocket books is they're very well ranked usually. So that I mm. think they do a good job of pushing you out there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, mo- they, which a lot of publishers don't. Yeah, they've got their own audience. You know, they have two million members. Their 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 podcast is number two in the investing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, so and I, I am going to be on the real estate podcast, which I was hoping they, they have so many podcasts now that you're not guaranteed. But you want to be on the big show. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, all right, I want to be on the big show. Um, but then I think I think you're right. I, I'm kind of looking at it in two tiers. Like I'm going to do the bigger pockets push and some of the financial independence people I know well that hopefully I'm have a good resonance with. And then, but I do want to the bloggers. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to try to, I don't know if you, did you have much success with like social media influencers at all? Like I said, it's a different world for me. I'm not. I mean, I had, I had friends, like I could talk to friends like JL Collins. Hey, can you throw this up on, you know, Twitter, whatever, a little success. I think, you know, if I was to uh, initially podcasts were most successful as time has gone on, the blogs have actually added a lot more than I thought. And then there Mm -hmm. was the few big media references and mm-hmm. people, you know, people tell you that it sometimes helps, it doesn't. But like I was in Yahoo Finance and that was a pretty good week. Um, I was just in US News and World Report, like money. They did like seven best financial books for women, actually, or for for women. And mine was and that that's I have something coming up in Kiplinger. So if you can, if you and you got to just pitch a lot and talk to people and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of a thing of just pushing, pushing, pushing. Uh, okay. But none of that hurts. And those were, those were you were talking about the spectrum of like general audience versus specific real estate investors. I'm thinking that would be you got to like craft your pitch for the more of the general audience on the big. I'm platform, thinking right? because yeah. you're part of bigger pockets and they're going to push you a little bit. You've got the real estate audience already. Right. The question is how how and I'm, I'll use the term lucrative, but we're not really talking about lucrative because we don't really care about the money. Mostly it's to get the yeah. ideas out. Right. The question right. is, how lucrative will it be with general audiences? And I don't know the answer to that story. Like, ultimately, yeah. you want to push past the bigger pockets group and mm-hmm. get to everybody. And I just don't know. Same with me. Like, I want to push past financial independence and even personal finance mm-hmm. and just get to the general reading public. Right. And so that's the that I think is a big question of of how to get past that. But like I think you'll have a great I mean bigger pockets like I said. And I think with your first book I think you're you know you you're very successful yeah. with bigger pockets too. So I think they're yeah. going to really hit the investor core. Yeah. Like so yeah. my bet is you're not going to have to put as much towards that if you don't want to. Yeah, that's good. Good point. Yeah, they they have they they have a huge um influence on the real estate investor you if, if investors are going to hear about you they're going to hear about you through bigger pockets yeah. more likely than, than others so i could put a lot and, of my attention on outside of that circle maybe want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.